0: Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now, and Lord, as we, as we hear these words, these prophecies from these great women, Lord, who, who are within the, the hall of faith of your people Israel, Lord, Lord, come and speak your word as they spoke it with power and might. Use, use the foolishness of preaching, we pray, Lord, to expound the good news, of Jesus Christ. Give me utterance. Give me the ability to speak clearly and uh, with, with, um, with integrity to handle the scriptures this morning. And please grant us open and listening hearts to all that we hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that reading we heard from Luke's gospel this morning is just chock full of singing and prophesying, singing and prophesying. In fact, even the song is prophetic. Prophesying, as you know, is the telling of what God is doing and what is, God is going to do. It's not necessarily about foretelling the future. It's about forthtelling what God is up to in the world. In other words, it's the insider's view of what God is really doing behind the scenes in the universe. It's the proclamation of God's purposes and His activities in the world, and these two first chapters of Luke—Luke Luke chapter one and Luke chapter two—are just plumb full of it. In fact, it seems like everyone in Luke's gospel here at the beginning is singing and prophesying and preaching all the way through Luke chapter two. It's like an ongoing camp meeting, right there in the Bible. Uh, Elizabeth prophesies. Mary sings and prophesies. Zechariah, John the Baptist's daddy, he sings and prophesies. The angels sing and prophesy when Jesus is born. The shepherds preach at the manger side. And old Simeon and Anna are in the temple and they prophesy over the newborn baby Jesus when he is brought there to be dedicated. So you don't have to wait until Luke writes Acts chapter 2 to get a glimpse of what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. He starts the gospel off with all the marks of a Holy Ghost revival. That's what it's like right here. There's so much singing. There's just so much singing. And you know, when something, when something truly wonder-filled, something unutterably glorious happens, you have to leave talking behind and head straight to singing. Why do you think so many people write love songs? When something as wonderful as falling in love happens to you, you don't sit down and pen a scholarly article about it. Well, I'm experiencing heightened sense of, of euphoria, and it's at the same time great anxiety. No, song and verse are the best response when something truly wonder-filled happens to you. And all of this singing in Luke. Is about the God who's always been in love with his world and what he is going to do about that love. And you know, that's why we sing so much at Christmas time. We're singing about what God has done in love for his world. But we're gonna have to get into the text and we're gonna have to kind of dig a, a little bit to see what is causing, what is the cause of all this singing and forthtelling in the first place. Well, the story begins, the narrative begins after Mary has accepted God's word to her through the angel that she would miraculously conceive the Son of God. She's been told by the angel Gabriel also that her kinswoman, and here's the quote from Luke 136, Elizabeth in her old age, Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And we can safely infer that Mary, to avoid being shamed in her village for being pregnant before she is married, leaves to visit the only person in the world who probably will be open to the fact that God is surprisingly starting to meddle in pregnancies. She goes to see Elizabeth, and it says in verses 39 and 40, in those days Mary arose and went with haste Into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And that all sets the stage for Elizabeth, for Elizabeth, and evidently John the Baptist in utero, it sets the stage for Elizabeth to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to prophesy. Elizabeth, by the Holy Spirit, supernaturally glimpses what God is up to in her young kinswoman, Mary, and she shouts. That's what the Bible says. It says, and she exclaimed with a loud voice. But really, it just means she shouted out, blessed, eulogia, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed, Makarios, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, what I want us to see in this section of 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 Luke's gospel, in fact, throughout this entire reading, is the first of many, listen, there is the first of many reversals, maybe even paradoxes in this passage. There's the first of many significant reversals, maybe even paradoxes in this passage. In the shame honor culture in which Mary and Elizabeth are situated, it's a shame honor culture, for a woman to be unable to conceive. Like Elizabeth, for a woman to be unable to conceive, opened her to shame. And for a woman to become pregnant outside of marriage, like Mary, would have opened her to scorn and condemnation, for people speaking all manner of evil against her. And furthermore, her child would always be condemned, the child that she bore would always be condemned as illegitimate in that shame, honor, culture. But Elizabeth even mentions that she felt the sting of shame for her childlessness in her own life when she says this. This is uh, verses 24 and 25 in Luke chapter 1. After these days, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, listen to what she says, to take away my reproach among people. And with all of that shame and honor talk in mind, this is what we need to be aware of and conscious of, okay? It really does make a difference. With that in mind, look at the word that Elizabeth uses for blessed, for blessed, when she says, "'Blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb.'" That word, that use of the word blessed, there's actually two words that get translated blessed here in Luke's gospel, but they're not the same word in the Greek. They're two different words. And this word is eulogia, eulogia, which is the word we get eulogize from, right? When someone has a eulogy, what does that mean? Listen, it means blessed, and here means to be well spoken of, to be well spoken of, to be praised. This is the, listen, this is the first unexpected reversal, the first inversion in this passage. Elizabeth prophesies this, listen, Mary, God is going to change your shame for praise. What what would happen in that shame honor culture for Mary having a baby without having a husband first? She would be shamed. But Elizabeth says, no, you're not going to be shamed. You're going to be well spoken of. You're going to be blessed, you you logia. Mary, God is going to change your shame to praise. God will do the same for your son. Now, here's the point that this makes for us. And so if you're going to write something down or remember something, I know you're remembering all of this. You're on the edge of your seat, the back edge of your seat, but on the edge of your seat. So here it is when we submit to god when we submit to god and when we invite jesus into our lives what did mary do she's she personally accepted jesus didn't she as her savior in a way no one else has ever done since she personally by faith accepted jesus believed god and accepted jesus submitted to god received Jesus into her life. So when we submit to God and invite Jesus into our lives, just like Mary did, God takes away our shame and gives us honor and blessing. God, listen, speaks well of us. God speaks well of us. And this leads to Elizabeth's second. Prophetic contrast and reversal. You may recall that back in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 23, we hear another story of someone who was visited by the angel Gabriel. I don't know that we recognize just how similar these passages are when Gabriel meets with Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, and when Gabriel meets with Mary. They're very similar passages. Elizabeth's husband Zechariah was offering his service as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem when this happens. This is Luke 1, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. I bet he was. When he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And then Zechariah says this. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man. Now think about all of the similarities, okay? Mary, when she's greeted by the angel, she, the angel says, uh, greetings, Mary, favored one. Uh, you're going to conceive and bear a son. He's going to be great. Going to be called, he's going to be the son of his father, David. He's going to be given the throne of David. He's going to be called great. He'll be the son of the, uh, called the son of God. And Mary says, what? She says, how can this be? Just like uh, Zacharias says, how can this be? I'm an old man. Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my, my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So this is almost a mirror image of the Annunciation to Mary. In fact, you know, the first thing that the angel says to Mary basically is what he said to Zacharias. Do not be afraid, Mary. He tells Zacharias, do not be afraid, Zacharias, Zachariah. Here is the reversal, though. Are you ready for this? The most, the, the prestigious religious professional, Zechariah, doing prestigious work in the most prestigious place in Israel. You don't get more prestigious than the temple. Uh, Herod's palace or anyone's palace there in Jerusalem, nothing at the level of prestige prestige like the beautiful temple. The most prestigious religious professional, listen, is unbelieving, while the teenage village girl on the bottom of the social ladder believes God's word. And Elizabeth is the one who points this out. She says to Mary, and blessed. She doesn't say eulogia there. She says makarios. That's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. When he uses that term, blessed, he's using the same word Elizabeth is using here. So listen, here's the reversal. And blessed is she who believed, unlike my husband Zechariah, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary's trust in God's word, God's faithfulness, grants her true happiness. That's what makarios means. Judith Jones writes this. She says, Mary is blessed because despite all expectations, her social status has been reversed. She will be honored rather than shamed for bearing this child. But she has also been blessed with divine joy, with beatitude, because she has believed that God is able to do what God promises to do. Faith in God's word brings genuine happiness. But you know, I have to tell you that Zachariah's experience with Gabriel is so similar to Mary's experience with Gabriel that it bothered me, all right? It bothered me that Zachariah asked the angel a similar question about how can this happen, just like Mary did. And yet, Zechariah is chastised for his doubt while the angel patiently explains things to Mary. Well, Mary, this is how it's going to work out. You're going to be overshadowed by the Most High. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to have a baby. The thing you're going to have is going to be called the Son of God. It's going to be great. He explains everything to her, as much as you can explain something like that. I just don't understand why we have two different outcomes for two different people. Well, fortunately, my research assistant, Timothy Keller, (laughs) had thought this through and he helped me out. And so he writes, there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind. And there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers and some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. There are people like Mary who are open to the truth and willing to relinquish sovereignty over their lives if they can be shown that the truth is other than what they thought. And there are people like Zechariah who use doubts as a way of staying in control, uh, use doubts as a way of staying in control of their lives and keeping their minds closed which kind of doubt do you have and following mary uh, excuse me following elizabeth's prophecy the narrative explodes with mary's joyful dangerous prophetic song that is full of reversals mary herself seems to have reversed gone is the meek and quiet submissive village girl that said, let it be done unto me according, I am the Lord's servant, let it be done unto me according to your words. Oh, that's so meek, that's so sweet, I like that, I want to be more like that. But something has happened to Mary, instead, now she sings a song that sounds like a battle song, a battle song, like the battle songs sung by other great women in Israel's past, like Deborah. It's a song in harmony with the victory song sung by Miriam when Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. And Miriam sang to them, Sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Now, let me interpret that to you in the way it would really sound to us today. Ha, ha, ha. God killed Pharaoh's army. We won. We beat the enemy. It's a song of victory. Mary's song is like Hannah's militant prayer when she found out that God had allowed her to have a son who would be the judge of Israel, Samuel. And Hannah prayed and said, "'My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation.'" And Mary's song, in the same way, proclaims God's great reversal of the order of the things that normally are are the normal course of life. He is about to overturn those who misuse power and authority to mete out death and oppression. And the shocking thing is that he is going to do it in a way that the cosmic forces that are hostile to God could not even begin to cope with. Mary praises God for the way that he has noticed, listen, he prayed, he she praises God that he has seen the lowly estate of his handmaiden. He gets praise from Mary because God noticed, noticed her humility. If you don't hear anything else, hear this, listen. In our world, the mighty are noticed. In our world, the rich are noticed. In our world, the politically powerful are noticed. In our world, the celebrities are noticed. That's why you're a celebrity. Somebody notices you. But in God's economy, the humble are noticed. God is attracted to humility. God can't take his eyes away from humility. And that's what Mary sings about. She rejoices that God is reaching his mighty arm into history and that he is going to turn everything that we thought was right side up, he's going to turn it upside down. And then she sings, He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud and the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He and has exalted the humble and meek. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Mary, aren't you gonna qualify that? Aren't you gonna temporize that a little bit? Can't you soften that a little bit, Mary? In this prophetic song of Mary, she declares God's great reversal. I'm not gonna temporize it either. I'm just going to let it stand because maybe God needs me to hear it like Mary said it. God is against. In other words, he is not on the side of the movers and shakers of society. The influential, the scoffing academic, and the sneering cultural elite, the wealthy, the politically powerful, the comfortable, the secure. God is actively bringing down the mighty and exalting the humble. He is filling the hungry and the rich. He rejects and sends them away empty. And just maybe, maybe, that's why of all the places that are our, our tiny little diocese that starts in North Carolina and basically goes to Maine, we're that big, it's not a lot of churches, but it's a big footprint of all the places in our diocese where God seems to be moving supernaturally in a powerful way, where He is just people are spontaneously, of all the places in the world where somebody might say, I think I want to be an Anglican. I want to come to Jesus, and then what, what flavor Christian will I be? Anglican. Nobody's ever said that before, y'all. Nobody says that. But all of a sudden, for some reason, West Virginia a state that lost population in the last decade. West Virginia is a place where God is raising up. There are four churches in formation right now, four areas. Um, Morgantown, Huntington, Clarksburg. Uh, one other one, this, there's another one as well that where God is at work miraculously, a humble place because God is attracted to humility. We'll talk about that in great detail at some point in the future. You see, Mary's song is really a song about God's judgment. And how is judgment coming? This is so so inverted from the way we think as well. God chooses, this is God's judgment. God chooses to enter the womb of the humble Virgin Mary and to inaugurate his time on planet Earth as the helpless child of a peasant girl. Because of her humble obedience and openness to God, Mary is more important than the great names that are mentioned throughout Luke's first few chapters here. In the days of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Powerful names like that. But because of her humble obedience and openness to God, Mary is more important than Caesar. God is going to change history, and he's not going to do it through Caesar Augustus or Herod the Great or the might of Rome's Rome's legions or with the religious establishment in Jerusalem. No, he is going to do it through Mary's baby, who is going to grow up to be what? A carpenter. God is going to change the world through a carpenter from Nazareth. And that's what William William Billings, the father of American shape note singing, was thinking when he penned these lines: Seek not in courts, nor palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable. Seek your God extended on the straw. Now, as we come to the end of this sermon, I want—I do have to ask myself this question: Why are all these reversals happening? Why all these reversals? And here's what I think it means. You ready? I think it's because the world we think of as being right side up is actually upside down in its rebellion against God. We think the world as it is right now is right side up. But God says, no, it's upside down. If you watch Stranger Things, and I do, can't wait for the next season to come out, we are living in the upside down. Believe me, you don't want to live in the upside down. Here is the fundamental Shock of Mary's prophetic song. God used the power of the womb to overcome the power of the tomb. God used the power of the womb to overcome the power of the tomb. God used Mary's womb to bring into the world the one who would trample down death by death, the one who shouts in victory as he crushes the grave beneath his feet on Easter Sunday morning. The depth of our brokenness is so great that God himself has to be tortured and nailed to a cross to cure our sickness. And again, Tim Keller writes, the salvation Jesus achieved came not through strength, but through surrender. Do you see the reversal? Not through strength, but through surrender, service, sacrifice, and death. This is one of the great messages of the Bible. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That's how God does it. But it's so different from the way we think about the world that God had to find a way to remind us over and over and over that he uses the weak and common things of this world to bring his power, glory, and transforming life into us. And so what did he do? He said, I'm going to give you a meal that you should do as often as you possibly can. This meal is going to be a sumptuous feast full of pheasant under glass and frog walk. Go get you some fragois and it's going to have, we're going to have uh, lark's tongues and we're going to have all of these fancy... No, no. God used the most common groceries he could think of to remind us of the great reversal of the gospel. Just simple bread and simple wine. He says, look, I come to you under these signs in humility Remember, remember that I am bringing down the mighty and raising up the humble. And if you want to be raised up with Mary, maybe you need to be humble too. May God grant us her humility. In my life, Lord, reverse my pride. Take out my stony, unbelieving heart and give me Mary's receptive and humble heart. May God grant us that gift this Christmas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.